the following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. So we are in the second week of a seven-week series on marriage, uh, in which we're just really trying to take a look at this thing, marriage, and go, man, what is it? How is it, how is it supposed to work? And our hope is that by going through this series that we would actually see marriages flourishing around here. It's not just our hope to take struggling marriages and make them okay and take okay marriages and make them a little bit better. We want to see you flourish in your marriages. Last week, Sam led out the series by laying out the foundation of a marriage for us, which is mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. And like a good foundation of a house, he spoke about how Christ is the only foundation capable of bearing the weight of your marriage. It's where marriage gets its power. It's where it gets its ultimate ability to withstand the storms of life that will inevitably roll in. Now listen, you're great, but you are incapable of being the foundation of your marriage. And your spouse is great, but they are incapable of being the foundation of your marriage. And man, we love kids here. That's why we have like a thousand of them downstairs and a couple hundred in here. Like, we love children. But if children are what you try to found your marriage on and and what's going to hold it strong and hold it together, you will inevitably crush your kids and most likely destroy your marriage. So my job today is to come and put up, in a sense, some walls and a roof on that foundation. And in the coming weeks, we're going to try to fill that house, right? So today we're going to, we're going to see that, okay, this is, what a, this is what's being built. And in the coming weeks, we'll deal with the details of how that really plays out. But today we need to take a look at the definition of marriage. At its core, at its essence... What is this thing we call marriage? Now, in order to do that, I think we need to understand where this idea of marriage originated. Like, where did it come from? Did marriage come from a couple guys sitting out in the field in the Bronze Age going, you know, we've got a lot to get done. What if we took one, one woman and one man who have different ways of seeing the world, different strengths and weaknesses, and we put them in a house and said, figure it out. I mean, what could go wrong, right? I don't think that's how it happened. In fact, we know that's not how how marriage uh, was created. And we see in the 31st verse out of our text today, in Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, when he quotes this here, he's actually quoting from all the way in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, when we see the this, this same words used. It's a few pages into God's story. The opening credits are still rolling, and we see it there, marriage. Now, I think this is important for us to get for a couple of reasons. First, 
Marriage isn't a secondary thing for God. It was built into the beginning of his story. This is pre-fall of humanity. This is the part of scripture where things are still good. Right? God's going around and he's creating and he's going, sun, good, stars, good, sky, waters, land, good, good, good. Plants, animals, birds, fish, these are all good. And then he makes man and he says, very good. But then in a shocking twist, God looks on his creation and says, there's something that's not good. Now the idea here is not that God looks at his creation and sees that it's broken in some way, but rather that it's incomplete. There's more that God wants to bless his creation with. He's not done. He sees the need for humans to be fully joyous, to to really celebrate all of his creation, to enjoy it to its full, need relationship. So I think, as we try to define marriage, we have to start here. Marriage is a gift given to us. Does it feel like a gift? Well, I think the second thing that we need to see about marriage coming here pre-fall is that everything that can and sometimes does make our marriages feel like it's not the gift that God intended it to be has nothing to do with its original design and everything to do with what would come after the fall. Our struggle in all of our relationships, not just marriage, has everything to do with the result of the fall, something that theologians call incurvitus inse, which means the heart that is bent in on itself. In plain terms, selfishness. The natural bent of humanity to believe that everything and everyone should be about them. It is selfishness that puts a strain on all of our relationships. But this becomes particularly true within the context of marriage. The natural bent of humanity is to think that everyone is there to make me happy, to fulfill my felt needs, and to serve me. The closer the relationship, the more our selfishness adds conflict and dysfunction to what God meant for our good. Now listen, the Bible says great things about friendship and the blessing of close companionship. But selfishness can ruin a lifetime friendship in an instant. The Bible also speaks of children as a blessing. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. I have two of these arrows, and between their selfishness and mine, they often feel more like a thorn in the side than a blessing in my quiver. The Bible says great things about spouses. In Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing 
and obtains favor from the Lord. Friends, children, spouses are all gifts of God meant to add joy and blessing to our lives. But these gifts can feel like less than gifts they were meant to be when selfishness and self-centeredness is lurking in the shadows of our hearts. Our self-centered, self-thinking, self-loving hearts are gift thieves attempting to rob us of all the joy that God's gifts were meant to, to bring us. When my friends, my kids, or my spouse are used as a commodity for me to spend, to use for, for, for me, rather than a gift to me, then loneliness, heartache, these are the only things that I'm, the ultimate receipt that I'm left with. So, if we're going to be able to receive the gift of marriage and experience all the blessing in it that God intended for us, we need to take a look at how it was designed to function. How has God intended my marriage to work? What is this thing we call marriage anyways? Now, marriage is a gift, but it's a gift that's meant to be enjoyed and expressed within the context of covenant. What comes to your mind when I say that? Marriage is a covenant. I think for most of us, our minds immediately go to contract. And although the ideas are similar, there are some very serious differences that we have to talk about. Most of our relationships today are contractual. You have a contract with your phone company, a contract with the cable company, a contract to buy a home. Contract in its essence says, you do A, and I'll do B. For example, you promise to give your phone company $150 a month. And for that $150, they promise to give you maybe two lines of service, so much data, and service that will drop when you're 20 yards off of the main road. You agree to the contract as long as the value you're getting is equal to or more than what you're giving up. So while a contract does take discipline to uphold your end of the bargain, much of the motivation of a contract is found actually in my desire to receive the benefits that we have agreed upon. It's about me gaining value. Is this contract good for me? Now we can see this in professional sports. I'm a big NFL fan. And every year, you hear about some player that agreed to a contract, and maybe they agreed when they were a good player, but now they've risen, they feel they're contributing more than what the pay uh, reflects, and so they hold out. They say, if you don't pay me more, I'm not showing up. Until you step up your end of the bargain, I'm not going to continue to hold up my end this has no longer become valuable for what I'm giving. But a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship is very different. You can also see a covenantal relationship in, in sports, but rather from the fan base. 
Now, there's a team that plays in Cleveland, Ohio, called the Cleveland Browns, and they are historically awful. But their fan base is historically loyal. The team has managed to put together only three winning seasons in the past 28 years. Not only that, they left once, and they, they, they fought to get them back, and they got them back, and they continue to lose. They continue to sell tickets to their games, and they continue to sell merchandise, and they continue to hold support of a loyal mass of fans that call themselves the Dog Pound. Right? Their fan base is so insanely loyal that last year they didn't win a game, went 0-16, and their fans held a parade to celebrate that team. Right? This is insane. Right? But, but it's covenant. This is, this is the idea of what it is. It's, it's not that you give me enjoyment through victory, through whatever. It's that I am dedicated. Tony, my wife, and I, we have family members that are dedicated Browns fans. And if you ask them, like, why the, why the Browns? They'll quickly respond with, because that's my team. It's win, lose, or die. Browns fan until I die. That's covenant. See, a covenant is a vow or decision that is made to uphold my end of the bargain. Period. That's it. No added clauses, no protection, no outs. Well, the main thrust of a contract is am I getting all that they promised to give me? The main thrust of a covenant is am I giving all? all that I said I would give. But a covenant goes even deeper than that. While a contract is made between two individuals as a business deal for mutual benefit, a covenant is two or more individuals coming into agreement and effectively being bound together with one another. So that... And, and, and with no outs, so that even if they aren't upholding their end, I still vow to uphold mine. This is the idea of, of behind the verse we read earlier. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Now, the ESV that we use here uses the words hold fast. Or another popular version, the King James says to cleave. Now, the idea here is about sticking together. The Hebrew word literally means to be glued to. The idea is to be bound to, attached to, dedicated to, loyal to. God's original design for marriage is one man and one woman committing to walk away from their identities as an individual or as part of a group, and bind themselves with commitment, with intention, and with duty. And vowing to attach themselves no matter what comes. It is no longer you and I, but it is now us. Win, loser, tie, bound to you, it's now us until I die. I mean, just think about the traditional marriage vows. I take you to be my husband or wife, 
to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in good times and bad, in sickness and health, to cherish and to love till death do us part. We put in our vows that this could go poorly. This could go south. We could hit tough times financially. One of us could get really sick. We could go through extended times where it just feels cold and dark. And we make the vow that I'm not going anywhere. That I'm all in. If it happens to you, it happens to us. I am glued to you with commitment, with intention, as my promise to our duty and bound and bond. Now listen, I know what some of you are thinking. Commitment, duty, intention, giving up individuality. This doesn't sound like love. Love is supposed to be free. It's not supposed to feel so restrictive. Love shouldn't be so serious. Love is about enjoyment. What's enjoyable about duty? Now, I get why you may be feeling that. But I think that has more to do with the day and age we're living in rather than a historical and biblical understanding of love. See, to our grandparents and some of us, to our parents, these were absolutely love words. They found their meaning and their value in their families, their relationships, and their commitments. To them, commit, commitment to their friends, their jobs, their families is where they established who they were. To them, commitment was actually the highest form of love. But in our postmodern world, we don't, we don't find who we are in the context of commitment and duty. We find our value in individuality and freedom. Our belief is that ultimately, above all else, I've got to follow my heart. And because my heart can change on a whim, I can't commit to anything. To, love, to us, love is not a commitment that you make or a promise that you uphold. Love is something that you catch. And if it's something you catch then it's something that can also get away from you. But when we view love through this lens, we come out believing that love is nothing more than a feeling. And in this view, then marriage, joining your life with another and laying down your freedom, laying down your ability to do what you want, when you want, actually does restrict your ability to feel loving. Because it presses on that curved heart, on the selfishness of your own heart. That's why there's a common phrase out there now. I don't need a piece of paper to love you. And more and more couples are now deciding to forego marriage and live like they're married, just without the covenant. But this is an extremely self-centered way, uh, way to love. It is completely determined by what I am feeling in this moment, right now. This kind of love says that, man, I love you today, sure. But I can't commit to tomorrow. 
So I've got to keep my options open. I don't know what I'll feel tomorrow. You have me today. It should be enough. In essence, what they're really saying is I love you right now, but I don't love you enough to restrict my options and make a commitment for the long haul. Now this is at odds with the way the Bible speaks about love. Biblical love does have a feeling element to it. But biblical love is not measured in what I feel, but rather what I, what I'm, what I do to express that love. The true measure of love in the biblical sense is not what do I feel, but what am I willing to give up? So the postmodern love of living, living as though you are married without the commitment is incredibly self-centered because it says, listen, my time, you can have that. Right? My help, I'll give you that. But you can't have me. I won't give myself to you. Now I get it. Give yourself to another, especially when you know they're selfish like you are, is incredibly risky. To commit to someone to stay through thick and thin and to live up to that promise, it's risky. I mean, what if I get hurt? What if things get painful and I don't have the option of backing away, cutting my losses and moving on? to protect myself from further pain? What if, I, what, if I'm, what if I'm wounded and I don't have the ability to run away? It's incredibly risky. I'm not talking about if you're in a marriage where you are fearful because of physical or emotional abuse. That's not what I'm talking about. But if your husband can't figure out how to pick up a towel off a floor, you might want to tune in, Right? Like, those things can hurt. These are understandable concerns. But I would argue to live that a way, in a way that does not allow for pain, does not allow for getting hurt, is to live ultimately in a way that will actually lead you to feeling less fulfilled, less joyful, and ultimately less human. You see, humans were made for relationships. And I'm not just talking loose connections. I'm talking deep, real, intimate relationships. But we live in a day and age where our relationships in general are just thin. You, you can have a couple thousands, a thousand friends on Facebook, but not truly be known by anybody. Social scientists say that we're actually living in the most connected time in history. But they also say we're the most lonely generation that's ever existed. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media outlets have given us a false sense of community that make us feel connected without the risk of vulnerability. To have relationship, there has to be some vulnerability. To be truly known is risky. C.S. Lewis points this out in his book, The Four Loves, when he says this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything 
and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure to keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with little hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Covenantal love, covenantal marriage, is about committing to be vulnerable without the option of running or hiding. To commit to give all of yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses, successes and your failures, to another. To make yourself available to be known, to be known, and in doing so, make yourself available to be hurt. And for the record, you will get hurt. Your husband, your wife, they're as selfish as you are. There's going to be things said and not said, done and not done, that, man, they're just going to sting a little bit. They're going to leave us feeling wounded, unloved, and questioning whether our spouse really cares for us at all. And you spend all day looking forward to when your husband gets home. And maybe you've been at home with kids and you're just excited to have an adult conversation. Or maybe, maybe you work a job, but you've been all day at work like, I can't wait to see my husband. So you get home or, or you prepare dinner and you're waiting for him to come in and here he comes in the house and your heart is, I mean, you're excited. And here he comes like a bull in a china shop, busts in the front door, scarfs down dinner and retreats to the, to the living room to watch a game to escape from the stresses of life. Or husbands, you've had that stressful day at work. You feel like a failure. You need some encouragement. And as you're trying to talk to your wife, a couple of your blessings have left their quiver and are running around and need help everywhere. And your wife is running around attending to their needs. And does she even care about me? Is it all about the kids? Now in these moments, are we contractual or are we covenantal? Do we have a contract where when I'm not receiving the, the love that I feel I should, I withdraw and wait for my spouse to acknowledge the pain and step up their game? Do we withdraw and, 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 and wait until the hurt is acknowledged and withhold our love, our affection, our service until they make it up to us? This is a contract. Or, true to the covenant we made, love in spite of the hurt. In spite of the sin, in spite of the failure to love and cherish the way they promised, and yet pursue them in the way that we said we would. That's covenant. Now, I'm not talking about ignoring your hurts. And I'm not talking about ignoring your spouse's sin. To do so would be to not truly love them. 
Because real covenantal love is a love that confronts with the, with the purpose of cleansing. Look at verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now these verses are directed towards husbands. But this kind of love is not commanded exclusively for men or husbands. A love that is outward-facing and sacrificial is what all disciples of Christ are called to. The point of this text is not Paul saying, like, men, listen to me. Love your wife, cherish her, serve her. Don't worry about respect. We'll, we'll, we'll get her with that. And it's not saying that women respect your husbands, but don't worry about loving, cherishing, caring for, being tender. None of that. We'll, and we'll cover why the extra emphasis on these attributes for wives and husbands in a couple weeks. But understand this. This kind of love isn't just for the husbands. It isn't just for the wives. This is a Christian kind of love. For our spouse, for our kids, for our co-workers, for our neighbors, for the whole world. But it is to be exercised with special attention and priority in the marital relationship. See, we don't just covenant in marriage to be vulnerable, despite our natural inclination to do so. As if that isn't difficult enough. We also vow to meet our spouse in all of their vulnerabilities with a covenantal love. We vow to see them in all their weaknesses, to see them in their failures, to look upon their faults and sins with a wholehearted, deep, and purposeful love that sees them at their worst, but vows to love them to their best. <clears throat> so what is their best? Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism fans, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The purpose of the love and marriage is to help be part of shaping our spouse into one that is fit for God, not fit for us. Marriage is by definition confrontational. There is no relationship you will be more confronted with your own selfishness than your marriage. And there is no relationship that you will need to confront one another's selfishness more than your marriage. Perhaps besides your children. <clears throat> a Christian marriage is the joining of one man and one woman for a lifetime discipleship project. 
Now, there's more to marriage than that. There is friendship. There is romance. There is sex. But at its core, by its very definition, a Christian marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman who through covenant are joined together for a lifetime of committed love with a decisive will to pursue mutual vulnerability with gracious and cleansing love. That's it. That's it. It's that easy. But see, this takes time. It takes effort. It takes covenant. It takes two people committed to work through lots and lots of selfishness and to go into the refining fire of marriage with a vision of being loving, being cherishing, being devoted, being tender, being tough. Covenant is hard. But covenant is a necessary type of relationship. Hear me. Covenant is a necessary type of relationship if we are going to be able to enjoy fully all the benefits that God seeks to bless us with. Now when I say that, I know that doesn't sound like good news to all of us. There are those of you in here that are single and it's your heart's desire to be married. And you hear me say that you have to have this type of relationship to get all that God means for you, all the ways he wants to bless you. Or maybe you are married and you're all in. You hear me talk about covenant and being vulnerable and loving with this cherishing love and you're like, yes, please. But your spouse, they're not all in. Maybe your spouse isn't even a Christian. Are you just on your own now? Understand those difficult things. But see, covenant relationship is necessary to reshape and cleanse our heart. But marriage is not the only covenant relationship that we've been given for that purpose. As a church family, we covenant to one another with the same aim. We covenant to our MCs and our fight clubs to be people who, when we are confronted in our sin, will not withdraw, hide, or ultimately walk away. That we will stick to the process. And we covenant that we will be people who will be tender, who will be tough, will be cherishing, will be kind, and cleansing in our love for the church family, keeping the gospel at the center, cleansing with the power of the gospel, as our only, our only tool, tool to wash. See, just as, our, just as marriage is one man and one woman being joined together through covenant and becoming one flesh, the church is many men and many women being joined together through covenant to make one body. To be covenantal takes effort. It takes duty, it takes self-sacrificial service, it takes devoted love, it takes forgiveness, it takes mercy, it takes compassion. See, God's hope for you is ultimately that you would not be a person who's bound to their feelings. Being loving only when it comes easy or when it's paying off its return on investment. 
but that you would become a person who is a covenantal lover of everyone. Especially when it's difficult. Especially when it costs you greatly. Because God's hope for you is that you would be like him. And there's a word in the Old Testament that's used about 250 times and is most often used to refer to one of God's chief characteristics. The word is, it's kind of guttural, it's chesed, right? Now scholars say that this word is very difficult to translate into the English language, that there's no single word in English that can capture all of its meaning. It's so deep, it's so rich. So they translate it in the Bible with words like mercy and kindness and loyalty and loving kindness and steadfast love. But no single word can convey its full depth. The chesed of God is all of those things and more. It is loving kindness, determined love, loyal love, pursuing love. See, God's chesed is what, he speak, is what David speaks of at the end of Psalm 23. And those words were in the song we sang today when he says, Surely your goodness and your mercy, your chesed, will follow me. Or in the Hebrew, says, will chase me down, will hunt me down all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, our self-centered, self-thinking, self-loving hearts are gift thieves, attempting to rob us of the joy and enjoyment that are found in in, uh, enjoying the good gifts of God by twisting how we use them. But God's covenant love that he freely and perfectly gives to all who trust in his name, it twists our heart back out. It's the only thing that has the power to reshape our hearts from being in curvitus inse to hearts that are capable of loving outwardly. See, and this covenant love, it, it has redeemed us. It is cleaning us. And it will not quit even after it's perfected us. This is the good news of the scriptures. I love the way that the, the children's storybook Bible speaks of this chesed of God, this, this covenantal love that he has for his people. It calls God's covenantal love his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It has no bounds. There's no end. There's no quit, no protections. And God proves it to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As John says in his gospel account, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus loves us with a love that doesn't say, once you're lovable, you'll get it back. It isn't contractual. Jesus is the complete and perfect covenant keeper. 
Jesus is the one who perfectly gave up his individuality and came and became bound with covenant breakers, suffering a covenant breaker's death. He is the one who perfectly gave up his freedom and was obedient to the Father's will and covenant to God. He is the one who has perfectly loved with a cleansing love that has the power to change a selfish lover into a selfless one. It is only when we are filled by perfect covenantal love found in Christ, in the gospel, that we are finally free to give it. Don't swap out the foundation of marriage and put yourself there. Draw your strength from it. It is the gospel that gives us the power to live in covenant. In our families, in our church lives. It is through God's perfect love being shown to us in Jesus, the only perfect covenant keeper, that we can really have a heart that is inwardly bent, begin to face outward and love God and love others in the way we were designed to. Where we get to experience the gifts of God as a blessing for us, not a commodity for us to use. Only when you see and believe that you are perfectly loved in the midst of all your failure to love back, are you then freed up to live with, to, to love with that same selfless, determined, and covenantal love. See, this is what we celebrate every week in the, in the Lord's table. We celebrate the fact that our God is a covenant lover. That his chesed will not stop. It will not quit. In the midst of your sin and your failure to live up to the covenant to him, he will chase you down all the days of your life. And it is his love that is going to transform you, that is going to make you new, and one day is going to perfect us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray for the marriages and the future marriages that are represented in this room. God, I thank you for the marriages that have seen evidences of your grace on their lives. And they've been marked with self-sacrificial service and grace and patience and love. I pray for the marriages that are in here that they're struggling to see fruit. I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would hold them, that you would empower them to be committed to your, to your gospel and to being shaped into a covenantal lover. And I pray that you would make them fruitful. And I pray for all of us that our hearts would be shaped by your gospel to be covenantal in our love for the entire world. That we wouldn't just be people who love when it's easy, but even when it costs us something. And completely born out of this love that you give to us that costs you the ultimate thing. Jesus, your own life. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would empower marriages, that you would encourage 
those seeking to live it out, to, to cling to your gospel. And I pray that you would do it for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.